I'm home. Welcome to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, an introspective look at video gaming from the classic era to the modern day. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number 39 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Um, not too much going on since... I recorded episode 38, um, I went to Pinball Pete's a couple times just for stress relief, unfortunately the Robotron still has issues with the, uh, firing stick, um, I thought they would gotten it fixed, and maybe it was fixed, but then it just collapsed again, I mean, those kind of things happen considering these video game machines are now going on 40 years old. Um, aside from that, you know, nothing really to write home about. I was really shocked uh, when I played Street Fighter 2 Champion Edition. I started off really, really great. I got, like, in the first three fights, I got, like, four perfects. And then after the challenging stage, I went up against Chun-Li, and she ran me off the machine. I was... I couldn't believe it. I haven't had that happen in years. But anyway, that's kind of how Capcom games can be. You know, they lure you in, especially Street Fighter. They lure you in for the first few fights. And then by the fifth or sixth fight, then all of a sudden the difficulty ramps up. And next thing you know, you're being, you know, knocked off the machine. So, you know, it even happens to the best of us. So, you know, it is what it is. Um... Aside from that, just doing the usual at home, uh, playing Elite Dangerous, playing Battletech, uh, nothing much else is grabbing my fancy right now. Um, I am considering going to the Arcade in Brighton not this weekend coming up, which is the holiday weekend for Memorial Day, but probably the next weekend. Um, what else? Uh, aside from that, that's pretty much it. Just sort of been working and kind of doing my thing trying to get trying to get quality sleep but that's a little hard to come by but you know that's what happens when you're a night owl and your son has to be up at eight o'clock in the morning to be ready to go to school by nine (laughs) and then once you get him off on the bus then all of a sudden you can't go back to sleep and then you're dealing with broken sleep patterns that's been my life for like the last two months or so but either way, you know, I'm de- I'm dealing with it. That's all I can do. Um, let's see. I do have a message uh, in my uh, inbox. It was through Instagram. Uh, it was a direct message sent by Kevin and Annie. Um, apparently, they have one IG account, and they both use it. Um, I think I'm talking to Kevin when he messaged me, so I'm going to read it now. Hello, Brian. I am enjoying the COAA podcast virtually no end. Thank you for creating this audio museum of the early digital experience. Great stuff. You're welcome. (laughs) It's nice to be recognized. Um, To continue, my my two most memorable arcades growing up in the Annapolis, Maryland area were uh, Aladdin's Castle and the Funcade, originally called the Silver Ball. And I'd be remiss not to mention Rocco's Pizza, which in the late 70s going into the early 80s always had one arcade game in the restaurant. 
It was in that pizza joint where I'll never, or I'll not forget seeing for the first time Space Invaders and late, later Donkey Kong. Both of those moments are forever etched on several folds of my brain. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. I remember when both of those games came to the Trumbull Mall Arcade and everybody was gathered around them. Um, to continue, thank you again. You have created something thoroughly enjoyable and relatable for so many of us who grew up amongst the comforting and exhilarating beeps and whistles of the arcade. Thank you very much, Kevin. I really appreciate those words. And yeah, I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. You know, like I've said in, um, what, episode three, maybe four, um, where I related the story about how I discovered my local mall had an arcade and, you know, just how my life changed on that day. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I understand completely. Um, the sounds of an arcade are um, always comforting to me, you know, even if I'm not playing the games or, you know, for whatever reason, whether I don't have money or whatever, but I hear those sounds and, you know, it's soothing. Um, but you know, once again, thank you for your instant message. I apologize for not getting to it sooner, but I don't have any notices telling me I have actual messages. I actually had to go into my Instagram account on my phone to realize I had one, and I'm glad that I did. Um, but yeah, like Kevin, uh, you can also contact the show at arcadeaddictbrian, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, there's a phone number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. Also, you can get a hold of me through social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. On Facebook, you just do a search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It'll take you right to the page. There's a discussion group that goes along with that page. Um, I have noticed there have been a lot of people checking out the page and some people even leaving likes and follows, which I always appreciate. Um, on Instagram, I am Arcade Addict Brian, all one word. On Twitter, I am Arcade Addict underscore B. And Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash confessions of an arcade addict. So once again, there are ways to get a hold of me. If you got any questions or stories that you want to relate about your arcade experiences, uh, anything that you're curious about, or anything you want to debate that I have said through these last 38 episodes, hey, you know, like I said, as long as you're civil, you know, we can have that discussion no matter where it leads. So anyway, with all that done, let's get right on to the show. I've got quite a bit to talk about, and the hour is late, so let's get right into it. Are you experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, baby, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying wet arse to my other chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cookie. We're not too old for this shit. Art you experienced the Nintendo Versus system. Okay, I like I've said, I've gushed about these games because this was a perfect... <laughs> 
lead-in, some would say gateway drug, for Nintendo to breach the U.S. market. I mean, whoever came up with these systems and implemented them over here is a genius. I mean, there's no other way for me to put it. Um, but like I said, I've ranted and raved and gushed and complimented this particular gaming system uh, ever since I did my top tens of 1984. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's not too much to be said, but there's a little bit of history here. So, once again, let's consult Wikipedia. The Nintendo Versus system is an arcade system developed and produced by Nintendo from 1984 to 1990. It is based upon most of the same hardware as the, as the Nintendo Entertainment System. All of its games are conversions from the NES. Some are heavily altered for the arcade format. The system focuses heavily on two-player cooperative play. It was released in three different configurations, uh, upright versus unisystem cabinets, upright versus dual system cabinets, and sit-down versus dual system cabinets. Games are on pluggable circuit boards, allowing for each side to have a different game. That was sneaky genius. I mean, that was one of the great things about the... Uh, of the unisystem cabinets, uh, no, not the uni the dual system cabinets, I should say, where basically you had, a, if you were looking at it straight ahead, if it was standing there in front of you, both dual system cabinets were like on an angle. So if you wanted to play, say, baseball um, or tennis, and you had two players who wanted to play it, one would get on one side, the other would get on the other side, and the angles were oblique enough that the one could not look at what the other was doing on his screen. So that was really cool. Um, the sit-down dual system, th that was really interesting. These little red cabinets, uh, they were more or less cocktail versions of the machine. Um, you know, with two seats on opposite ends of the cabinets and two screens, you know, at angles that way. So that, yeah, you could play against someone. Those are really cool. Uh, to continue, the Versus system was a commercial success in the United States where it sold nearly 100,000 arcade cabinets and was the highest grossing arcade machine of 1985. I believe that. <laughs> Just considering you know, all the games that came out in 1985, for this system. I mean, they only started with a few in 84, but once 85 came around, when they came out with came out with games like Hogan's Alley and Excite Bike, it was on, let me tell you. Uh, to continue, it was the first version of the Famicom hardware to debut in North America in 1984. The system's success in the arcades paved the way for the official release of the NES console in North America. Oh yeah, it certainly did. Okay, uh, let's do the hardware really quick. Uh, the Versus system was designed primarily as a kit to retrofit Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., Donkey Kong 3, Popeye, and Mario Brothers cabinets, so they require the same special monitor. These monitors use inverse voltage levels for their video signals as compared to most arcade monitors. Almost all Versus system cabinets have identical hardware, powered by a Ricoh 2A03 central processing unit, the same in the Nintendo Entertainment System, except for special PPUs or video chips. Each chip contains a different palette that arranged the colors in different configurations chosen apparently at random. 
Most boards can be switched to a new game by simply swapping the program ROMs in the appropriate PPU or the game will have incorrect colors. That explains a lot, actually. <laughs> um, several of the later Versus games uh, f employ further copy protection by using special PPUs which swap pairs of I.O. registers or s return special data from normally unimplemented regions of memory. Attempt to run attempts to run these games in other versus system modules will result in the game failing even to start. Interesting. Uh, some dedicated versus double cabinets look like two games butted together at an angle with a single motherboard. That those are ones that I was first introduced to. The red tent, a steel sit-down cabinet for the versus dual system, allowed allows play for up to four players simultaneously. It has the same motherboard as the double cabinet. Because the Versus system has the same CPU as the NES, its games can be ported to the NES with modifications to the console, including extra memory banks and additional DIP switches. Interesting. Uh, let's go on to the history. Uh, the Nintendo Versus system played an important role in the history of the Nintendo Entertainment System. <laughs> There's an understatement. The Versus system was the first version of the Famicom hardware to debut in North America during 1984, the success of which paved the way for the official release of the NES console. Following the video game crash of 1983, the North American home video game market had collapsed. Nintendo's negotiations with Atari to introduce the Famicom in North America fell through due to Atari's collapse, while Nintendo of America's market research was met with warnings to stay away from home consoles, with U.S. retailers refusing to stop game, stock game consoles. Meanwhile, the arcade game industry also had a slump as the golden age of arcade video games came to an end, but the arcade industry was able to recover and stabilize with the help of software conversion kits, such as Sega's converted game system, the Atari System 1, and the Nintendo Pack system. Hirochi Yamauchi realized that there was still a market for video games in North America, where gamers were gradually returning to arcades in significant numbers. Yeah, that's true. Um... In 1984, I think the arcades started to rebound a little bit and stabilize, because I did notice, because I was hanging out at arcades so much, that there weren't that many p people, you know, I'd say probably fall to winter of 83, you know, not as much as the previous year. 82 was probably the most successful year for arcade games, in my opinion, um, you know, which is really silly because 80 and 81 70, you know from 78 straight through to 82 they were all great years but uh i think 82 was actually the most successful yeah we, there i wish there was a way to really determine that but i don't think there is okay so to continue Gamauchi still had faith there was a market for the famicom so he decided to introduce it to north america through the arcade industry that is the key. That was a... Hirochi Yamauchi is a genius for coming up with this system, not number one, and actually having the faith to implement it. You know, because, yeah, the arcade industry was stabilizing, but it was nowhere near what it was even a year ago. Uh, to continue, Nintendo developed the Versus system with the same hardware as the Famicom, and it introduced and introduced it as the successor to their Nintendo Pack arcade system, which had been used for titles such as Donkey Kong 3 and Mario Brothers. 
while technologically weaker than Nintendo's more powerful punch-out arcade hardware, the Versus system was relatively inexpensive in comparison, epitomizing Gunpei Yokoi's philosophy, philosophy of, quote, lateral thinking with withered technology, end quote. Ooh, that's a, there's, a, there's a saying. Okay, um, the Nintendo Pack and Punch-Out! Hardware also had a limited game library, whereas the Versus system was able to offer a wider variety of games due to being able to easily port over games from the Famicom. Nintendo of America hired Jeff Walker from Bally to help market the Versus system in North America, where, where it made its debut at the 1984 ASI show, along with Punch-Out! in February 1984. So yeah, they were planting seeds that early. That's interesting. Uh, let's move on to the reception. Um, upon release, the Versus system generated excitement in the arcade industry, receiving praise for its easy conversions, affordability, flexibility, and multiplayer capabilities. However, the Versus system received some criticism for its graphics, which were seen as being technologically weaker than rival arcade systems, as well as a step back from Nintendo's own more powerful punch-out arcade hardware. That's true, but sometimes you don't have to be the biggest in order to be the best. <clears throat> to continue, in Japan, Versus Tennis topped Japan's chart for table arcade cabinets in April 1984 and May 1984, while Versus Baseball topped the chart in June and July of 1984. By 1985, however, the Versus system had declined in Japan, which led Yamauchi to de deciding to pull Nintendo out of the Japanese coin-op industry in late 1985. Interesting. In North America, by contrast, the Versus system became a major success. Between 10,000 and 20,000 arcade cabinets were sold in 1984, while individual Versus titles were top earners on arcade charts. Versus Tennis topped the arcade charts for software convergence kits in July of 84 and August 8, 1984. Uh, and Versus Baseball topped the charts in September through November of 1984. By 1985, 50,000 cabinets had been sold, establishing Nintendo as an industry leader in the arcades. That's interesting. Wow. I didn't. I had no idea about all this. In November 1985, five Versus games were on the U.S. Replay Top 20 arcade charts, with Versus Hogan's Alley holding the top spot. Yeah, I believe that. When Hogan's Alley came out, uh, yeah, the, everyone was playing it. It was like a major, major earner in Trouble Mall Arcade and also Milford Rec, where I would see those games. Uh, Duck Hunt was also popular in the arcades at the time. Uh, the Versus system went on to become the highest grossing arcade machine of 1985 in the United States. How about that? To continue... The success of the Versus system gave Nintendo the confidence to release the Famicom in North America as a video game console, which would be called the Nintendo Entertainment System. Nintendo's strong positive reputation in the arcades also generated significant interest in the NES. It also gave Nintendo the opportunity to test new games as Versus packs in the arcades to determine which games to release for the NES launch. Remember what I said when I talked about this? <laughs> um... Nintendo's software strategy was to first release games for the Famicom, then the Versus system, then for the NES. This allowed Nintendo to build a solid launch lineup for the NES. Many games made their North American debut on the Versus system before being released for the NES, 
which led many players to being amazed at the accuracy of the arcade ports, quote-unquote, for the NES, despite most versus system games originating on the Famicom. Within a few months of its 1986 release, 20,000 versus Super Mario Bros. arcade units were sold, becoming the best-selling versus release with each unit constantly earning more than $200 per week. That's $200 in 1986 money, which is equivalent to $470 in 2020 money. Um, its arcade success helped introduce Super Mario Brothers to many players who did not yet own a Nintendo Entertainment System. <laughs> I, I have thoughts about all this, but let me finish. Uh, by the time the NES launched in North America between late 85 and, 80, and early 86, nearly 100,000 Versus systems had been sold to American arcades. According to Ken Horowitz, the Versus system, quote, was perhaps the most vital catalyst in the rise of the NES to the top of the home video game market, end quote. <laughs> yeah. And they give a complete, uh, they give, well, not a complete list, but they give a list of uh, all the games that were developed for the Versus system. Although, as you go a little further along in the, uh, as you go a little further along on, lower on the list, there are a bunch of them that were never released. Um, there were some that were released just in Japan, there were some that were just released in the United States, or not the United States, North America. And, yeah, there were, the last four were never released, which is unfortunate. Okay, my experiences with it, like I, like I said in a previous episode, this was a genius move by Nintendo in 84. I mean, the person who wrote the Wikipedia article, I think sort of softened his language a little bit, but I'm going to say it as it is. The Versus system and the Play Choice 10 system that would come after it um, these were gateways for people buying the Nintendo Entertainment System. They even, and just to know that that Nintendo actually had an actual release system, you know, where they would release it in Japan, then they put it on the Versus System, then they release it on the NES. You know, that's that's just genius. That's perfect. Um, I was lucky enough to live in the New York City area in 1985 when Nintendo released the NES as something of a testbed, um, and this strategy paid off in spades. People bought the NES in droves, and it, owning one for a little while was a status symbol. Um, well, probably for me because, you know, I grew up poor. <laughs> um, like was said, the games of the Versus system and those of the NES were close to identical. Um, my favorite Versus games were the original Baseball, Stroke and Match Golf, Excite Bike, and RBI Baseball. Uh, both the Trumbull Mall Arcade and Spanky's had them, and I was I was seriously addicted to them. I really was. <laughs> I was throwing all kinds of quarters and tokens in those machines. I mean, I've told the story about how myself and like five other guys had battles around the game excite bike where we would be constantly competing for high scores and the best course types times on the game um another one was hogan's alley i wasn't that great at hogan's alley i really wasn't but you know at this time i was hanging out with mark a lot and he was really good at it and he and like 
two or three other people would have like these you know high score wars you know it was really interesting to watch it really was um 1984 and 85 at least to me were the best years for the system uh until the play choice 10 came out in 1986 and we will get into that <laughs> it's in a future episode i just forget where where i put it on my uh show list um, this was another great move in selling the NES because then they could pack in third-party games along with their own library. Kids would play these machines and then immediately go to their parents and hound them to buy an NES or buy that game that they were playing. Whoever thought of these ideas, and that was Yamauchi-san, <laughs> he was a marketing genius. I mean, hands down. If this is a... You could almost teach marketing... Um, you know, just you know, educate people in marketing by just, you know, breaking down the history of the versus system. You know, I won't go so far as to say the versus system um, mitigated the deleterious effects of the crash, but it did quite a bit to, you know, make people go back, you know, to start going to arcades again, because there was a little bit of a lull. I mean, it wasn't just the results of the crash, there were also not quite that many good games coming out in, I'd say, probably about 1985 or so. You know, it just, the market just wasn't quite there. And then the Nintendo came in the year before, you know, with the Versus system, and then a year later, they come out with the NES, and yeah, you know, there was just this rush to get this system. But anyway, that's the Nintendo Versus system in a nutshell. Um, if you have any experiences with it, thoughts, questions, you know, get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, so from there, let's go on to time for some strategy. Time for some strategy. How to master the home video games by Tom Hirschfeld. Um, now, this is a year after he released the how to how to master the video games. Um, of course, in 1979, 1980, with the rise of the Atari 2600, the proliferation of the Intellivision. Uh, just those two systems in more or less direct competition with each other. Um, of course, people wanted to learn how to you know play and get good at a lot of the games that would come out for these systems. Um, and of course, you know Tom Hirschfeld wrote you know how to master the video games, which was an excellent uh, an excellent reference on you know, how to get better at the most popular games of the day, which was right around, what, 1981? And then this, uh, and then this comes out right on the heels of it. Um, I think he goes from 
eight, 19, the games, like the most popular games in like 19, from 1981 to 1982. He covers Asteroids, Combat, Missile Command, Space Invaders, Warlords, Dragster, Freeway, Kaboom, Laser Blast, and Stampede for the Atari 2600. And then he covers Armor Battle, Astro Smash, Sea Battle, Space Armada, and Space Battle for the Intellivision. He covers these games in the exact same way he did for the arcade games in the first book. A little page for beginners, the Know Your Enemy chapter explain what each video game does and why, the nine steps toward game mastery, a splash page describing the Atari and the, and the Intellivision, and then he gets to the games. Uh, explains what one sees on the screen and what it is, the controls, scoring, dangers, observations, strategy, and the case in case of the 2600 games, a diagram of all the game variations. That's good because games like Asteroids, for example, had 66 variations. Um, how many did Space Invaders have? 112, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, it basically breaks it down to where you can figure out what game you want to play and, you know, where it goes from there. Um, this comprehensive breakdown lays, lays bare to a lot of the game's secrets, making each game a matter of study and practice. There's a lot to uncover in this book, and it is worth finding. If you cannot find a copy, and considering the book is 38 years old now, that wouldn't be surprising. Um, you can go to archive.org, and they have an interactive copy that you can read. Um, if you want to learn how to get good at these old school games, you can certainly do worse than this book. Uh, another place to go is like Abe Books. That's A-B-E-B-O-O-K-S dot com. That's where I usually find all the really old and out of print books uh, from, you know, my childhood and teenage years. Um, they ha usually have them and have them for halfway decent prices. So that's another way to go if you cannot find it elsewhere. Um but yeah, I do know that archive.org does have an interactive uh, copy of it, and so you can at the very least read that. Um, any thoughts, questions, comments? You know what to do. Arcade.brian at gmail.com. Okay, from there, let's go on to Arcade Review. Marvin's Marvelous Mechanical Museum, Farmington Hills, Michigan. Okay, um, this place, I've been there, what, three times? Maybe four? Um, the first time was, oh goodness, I want to say, what, 2015, I think? 2015 or 2016, somewhere in there. Um, and then the last three times I went... Um, was when I was actually working in that area when I used to work up in Novi, which is the next town over from Farmington Hills, heading west. So, you know, it was within a good, what, 
10 minute drive from uh, my place of work to get over there. So, you know, I went over there just, you know, to blow off a little steam. And then uh, when I started getting this uh, podcast going, I decided to, u- to do this place and give it a proper review since I've already done uh, a rundown of it uh, several episodes ago. So here it is. Each one of these arcades I visit, I rate along five criteria. Location, selection, ambiance, functionality, value. Location, where is it? Is it easy to get to? Is there plenty of parking uh, when you get there? Things like that. Selection, how many machines do they have? What's the cross-section? Do they have? They rely on the classics? Do they have new games? Uh, or is it a mixture? Uh, ambiance, um, what is there to look at aside from the games? Um, is there, uh, you know, is the staff helpful if you have any problems? Things like that. Um, functionality, do the games work? Uh, are there a lot of machines that are out of order? Um, how, you know, how do they look? Even though, like I said before, I will give more points if they have actual functioning games than how the games look. You know, if... Uh, an arcade machine is looks, you know, beat to hell like it fell off the back of a truck or something, but the controls work perfectly. I'll give a higher rating because of that, because, you know, like I said, it's all about the gameplay with me. And lastly, value. Uh, do they operate on tokens? Do they operate on quarters? Uh, do they run the fle- free play option? Um, and so on and so forth. Is, are there other things in the place uh, for you to spend your money on. Like, do they have um, uh, vending machines, you know, for snacks and drinks and things like that? That actually adds to the value because that way it also, you know, it it also is able to keep you in there longer, quite honestly. So, yeah, um, each criteria is rated from 1 to 10 with half points coming into play. Uh, You add all these uh, values up and then you divide it by five, and then you get a total score. So let's get right to it. Location, I give it a six. Uh, Marvin's is located on Orchard Lake Road, about three miles north of Interstate 696 in Farmington Hills. Even though it's in a prominent shopping center on the west side of the road, you have to keep a sharp eye out, or you can drive right by it. And actually, the first time I went there, I missed it. Because it's basically on the side of... Uh, a building and there's like this overhang that goes in between the buildings uh, that leads to the parking area but if you don't keep an eye out for that yeah you can miss it pretty easy Um, also the parking near the building is at something of a premium because usually especially on the weekends there's a lot of people in there so you might have to park a little ways from the place and walk it over you know walk over to it from where you parked so, you know, all those, all those uh, things considered, I gave it a 6, slightly above average. Uh, selection, 6.5. Um, with 14 pinball machines and 16 arcade games, the selection is a little light, but the variety is pretty wide. Um, they're ranging from Space Invaders to Star Wars Battle Pod. Um, the first time I went in there, there were more arcade games than when I went there most recently which was just before the pandemic hit. I think it was like January of 2020 when I went in there. 
So, yeah, I mean, the first time they had more uh, arcade games, I would say they probably had about, I'd say probably 20 machines, maybe as many as 25, along with, like, I'd say probably about uh, about 16, about, excuse me, about a dozen pinball machines. So, yeah, they took a little bit out, but I understand why, because they put, like, large Japanese import games in there, so... Like I said, you know, there were more arcade games the first time I went here, and, you know, if you have more games, that's always a plus in my book. So, um, they do have a lot of uh, redemption games, uh, to be sure, but it's not an egregious amount, and they are separated uh, from where the arcade games are, which are right up front. Um, Ambience, 95 um, as I said when I gave a rundown on this place, going into uh, Marvin's is like stepping into the Twilight Zone, but in a good way. Um, there are so many things to look at, it almost distracts you from the actual games. Um, it's worth taking 10 or 15 minutes to walk around the place a couple of times just to see all the old school attractions and models and things like that. Um, they have like old school, old time machines in there I haven't seen since I was a kid. And some of them I've never seen in my life. And it's it's awesome. Um, you know, so yeah, I give really, really high marks for that. Um, functionality, 7.5. Uh, all the machines worked pretty well, and they look to be in decent shape. So I'll give above average marks for that. You know, because not only do they work well, they actually look pretty decent. So yeah. But value gets only a 4.5. Marvin's operates on quarters, and most of the games were 50 cents to start, uh, ranging all the way up to Mario and Sonic at the Olympics and Star Wars Battle Pod, which were $1.50 apiece. Um, I could go lower as far as value. I could go down, go down as far as a four, but four and a half is fair. Um, so yeah, you just give, you add all these up, and you divide by five, you get a total score of 6.8, which is pretty decent. Um, people who live in this area swear by this place. Um, this, Marvin's has probably been around for at least, oh goodness, I want to say 20 years. Um, you know, in my opinion, they should always should get more arcade games in there, lower the prices, but I understand why they do that. And not to mention once the pandemic hit, you know, um, once the pandemic hit, they had to shut down completely, which was really bad. Um, they've fallen on hard times since the outbreak of the pandemic. Of course, things are a lot more relaxed now, and they're about to get much more relaxed in the next month or so. Um, but yeah, I saw on Facebook that they were considering closing down for good because they're not making any money, and the rent has to be absolutely ridiculous for that place, not to mention the power bill. Um, but I think someone came through for them in the 11th hour because they were able to stay in business until uh, the governor started slowly reopening the state. And um, I went up there right after um, restrictions were uh, relaxed enough to where people could go into a place like that at, like, what, 50% capacity or whatever. So, yeah, I went over there after work one day. Um, let's see. Uh, there, the I found a video on YouTube, and I'm going to post it in the show notes, but um, 
there's a local Michigan news channel and website that has a video, a good video about Marvin's. So I'll put it in the show notes to be sure. Um, like I said, little light on the games. The cross section is good. It's a little expensive, you know, but you know, you're also have to understand, you know, consider the source, you know, I'm a poor video gamer. You know, I grew up poor, you know, things are not quite so bad now. I think I've finally crossed over into middle class. And um, so, but yeah, I mean, it still kind of irks me a little bit when I have to pay 50 cents to play Space Invaders or something like that. You know, it's just kind of, it's a little bit aggravating. But then again, I've always said that. So yeah, that's my review of Marvin's. Um, if you live in the Detroit, Farmington, Hills, Farmington, Novi um, area, you know, or any any places around there and you frequent Marvin's, tell me what you think of it. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com. Okay, and we will go on to the last segment of the show, which is Home Systems. There is no place like home. Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you, guys. I'm a game. Clear a path! I'm going home! Home Systems. The Xbox 360. Now, <laughs> you know, this is, you know, yeah, this is the last of the, the latest, uh, the latest uh, home console that I own. Well, I have a 360, I have an original Xbox, I have a PlayStation 2, PlayStation 1, um, I have a 3DO, I have a Nintendo GameCube, and I think that's just about it. <laughs> you know, I don't think I have anything earlier than that. Like I said, I used to have a Genesis, but a former roommate of mine, not the one that I that I talk so glowingly about, um, but another one who lived with me for a little while after my original roommate and I parted ways, he took my uh, Genesis when he moved out, which, you know, <laughs> kind of irks me, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the 360 is a system that, you know, I still play to this day, and even though I don't have very many games for it because, it, you know, I'm a little picky when it comes to games i just don't buy what commercials tell me to buy i if i'm interested in something i certainly will buy it but anyway let's get on to a little information about it from wikipedia once again the xbox 360 is a home video game console developed by microsoft as the successor to the original xbox it is the second console in the xbox series it competed with Sony's PlayStation 3 and Nintendo's Wii as part of the seventh generation of video game consoles. It was officially unveiled on MTV on May 12, 2005, with detailed launch and game information announced later that month at the 2005 Electronic Entertainment Expo. The Xbox 360 features an online service, Xbox Live, which was expanded from its previous iteration on the original Xbox and received regular updates during the console's lifetime. Available in the free and subscription-based varieties, Xbox Live allowed users to play games online, download games through Xbox Live Arcade, and game demos 
purchase and stream music, television programs and films through Xbox Music and Xbox Video Portals, and access third-party content services through the media stream applications. Remember what I said when I talked about the original Xbox, or excuse me, the uh, the PlayStation 2, um, where I said that basically it was these two systems, the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360, were the true multimedia uh, home game consoles. Well, this confirms what I said. Um, in addition to online multimedia features, it allowed, allows users to stream media from local PCs. Several peripherals have been released, including wireless controllers, expanded hard drive storage, and the Kinect motion sensing camera. Uh, the release of the additional services and peripherals helped the Xbox brand grow from gaming only to encompassing all multimedia, turning it into a hub for living room computing entertainment. Launched worldwide across 2005 and 2006, the Xbox 360 was initially in short supply in many regions, including North America and Europe. Yep. <laughs> what else is new? <laughs> Every generation it gets worse. Um, the earliest versions of the console suffered from a high failure rate indicated by the so-called Red Ring of Death necessitating an extension of the device's warranty period. Microsoft released two redesigned models of the console, the Xbox D360S in 2010 and the Xbox 360E in 2013. The Xbox 360 is the sixth highest selling home video game console in history and the highest selling console made, made by an American company. Although not the best-selling console of its generation, the Xbox 360 was deemed by Tech Radar to be the, mo be the most influential through its emphasis on digital media distribution and multiplayer gaming Xbox Live. The Xbox 360 successor, the Xbox One, was released in November 22, 2013. On April 20, 2016, Microsoft announced that it would end the production of the new Xbox 360 hardware, although the company will continue to support the platform. Okay, let's go right to the, dev no, excuse me. Let's go, yeah, let's go to the development. Let's do that. Uh, known during development as Xbox Next, Xenon, Xbox Two, Xbox FS, or Nextbox. Jeez, these are so weird. Weird collection of names, really. The Xbox 360 was conceived in early 2003. In February 2003, planning for the Xenon software platform began and was headed by Microsoft's Vice President Jay Allard. Uh, that month, Microsoft held an event for 400 developers in Bellevue, Washington to recruit support for the system. Also that month, Peter Moore, former president of Sega of America, joined Microsoft. On August 12, 2003, ATI signed on to produce the graphics processing unit for the new console, a deal which was publicly announced two days later. Before the launch of the Xbox 360, several alpha development kits were spotted using Apple's PowerMac G5 hardware. This was because the system's PowerPC 970 processor running the same PowerPC architecture that the, three, uh, that the 360 would eventually run under IBM Xenon processor. The cores of the Xenon processor were developed using a slightly modified version of the PlayStation 3 cell processor PPT, PPE architecture. How about that? I never knew that, but that's interesting. Um, to continue, according to David Shippey and Mickey Phipps, 
The IBM employees were hiding their work from Sony and Toshiba, IBM's partners in developing the cell processor. Jeff Mintner created the music vigilation program, Neon, which is included with the Xbox 360. Okay, going to the launch. The Xbox 360 was released on November 22, 2005 in the United States and Canada, December 2, 2005 in Europe, and December 10, 2005 in Japan. It was later launched in Mexico, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, India, and Russia. In its first year on the market, the system launched in 36 countries, more countries than any other console has launched in a single year. Whew. Wow. That's interesting. Uh, in 2009, IGN named the Xbox 360 as the sixth greatest video game console of all time out of a field of 25. Although not the best-selling console of the seventh generation, the Xbox 360 was deemed by TechRadar to be the most influential by emphasizing dis digital media distribution and online gaming through Xbox Live and popularizing Game Achievement Awards. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that, was a th that was a thing for a while. Now, you know, Steam does it and a whole bunch of other people do it, but let's continue. PC Magazine considered the 360 the prototype for online gaming as, quote, as it, quote, proved that online gaming communities could thrive in console space, end quote. Five years after the 360's original debut, the well-received Kinect motion ca capture camera was released, which set the record for, of being the fastest-selling consumer electronic device in history and extended the life of the console. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, Edge ranked the 360 as the second-best console of the 1993 to 2013 period, stating, quote, it had its own social network, cross-game chat, and new indie games every week, and the best version of just about every multi-format game. Killzone is no Halo, and nowadays Gran Turismo is no Forza, but it's not about the exclusives. There's nothing to trump Naughty Dog's PS3 output, after all. Rather, it's about the choices Microsoft made back in the original Xbox's lifetime. The PC-like architecture meant that the early EA Sports games ran at 60 frames per second as opposed to only 30 on the PS3. Xbox Live meant that every dedicated player had an existing friends list, and Halo meant that Microsoft had the killer next-generation exclusive. And when developers de demo games on PC, they now do it with a 360 pad, another industry benchmark and a critical one. End quote. Interesting. Okay, let's move on to the sales. The 360 began production only 69 days before launch, and Microsoft was not able to supply enough systems to meet initial consumer demand in Europe or North America, selling out completely upon release in all regions except Japan. Yeah, Microsoft has always had a problem selling Xboxes in Japan, but let's continue. Uh, 40,000 units were offered for sale on auction sites, auction site eBay during the initial week of release, 10% of the total supply. By year's end, Microsoft had shipped 1.5 million units, including 900,000 in North America, 500,000 in Europe, and 100,000 in Japan. In May 2008, Microsoft announced that 10 million 360s had been sold, and it was the, quote, first current-generation gaming console to surpass the 10 million figure in the U.S., in the U.S., the 360 was the leader in current-generation home console sales until June of 2008, when it was surpassed by the Wii. By the end of March 2011, Xbox 360 sales in the U.S. had reached 25.4 million units. 
Between January 2011 and October 2013, the 360 was the best-selling console in the United States for these 32 consecutive months. Wow. Uh, by the end of 2014, 360 sales had surpassed uh, the Wii, making the 360 the best-selling 7th generation console in the U.S. once again. In Canada, the 360 had sold a total of 870,000 units as of August 1st, 2008. In Europe, the 360 had sold 7 million units as of November 20, 2008. In the United Kingdom, the 360 had sold 3.2 million units by January 2009, according to GFK Chart Track. The 8 million unit mark was crossed in the UK by February 2013, and sales of the 360 would overtake the sales of the Wii later that year, making the 360 the best-selling 7th generation console in the UK. Over 1 million units were sold in Spain across the console's life, life cycle. The 360 crossed the 1 million units sold in Japan in March 2009 and 1.5 million units sold in June, June 2011. This is what I mean. You see the numbers in the US and the UK and even in Spain, but you see how slow it took for them to cross the million mark in Japan. That's what I mean. Um, but anyway, to continue. While the 360 has sold poorly in Japan, selling only 1.63 million units, it improved upon the sales of the original Xbox, which had only sold 450,000. Edge magazine reported that Microsoft had been unable to make serious inroads into the dominance of domestic rivals Sony and Nintendo, adding that the lackluster sales in Japan had led to retailers scaling down and in some cases discontinuing sales of the 360 completely. The significance of Japan's poor sales might be overstated in the media in comparison to overall international sales. I disagree with that last statement because Sega and uh, Nintendo, excuse me, Sony and Nintendo, of course, they have the home court advantage there. But yeah, they they just always Microsoft always had a problem trying to sell their systems in Japan. That's just how it is. You know, it has to be, like, above and beyond so much better than the, the their contemporaries that, you know, that it, it can't be ignored. And I'm not so sure the system was quite, was superior, either one. But that's just my feeling on it. Okay, uh, let's go on to the Legacy. The 360 sold much better than its predecessor, although not the best-selling console of the seventh generation, as was said. It is regarded as a success since it strengthened Microsoft as a major force in the console market at the expense of well-established rivals. True. Uh, the inexpensive Nintendo Wii did sell the most console units, but eventually saw a collapse of third-party software support in its later years, and has been viewed by some as a fad since the succeeding Wii U had a poor debut in 2012. The PlayStation 3 struggled for a time due to being too expensive and initially lacking quality games, making it far less dominant than its predecessor, the PlayStation 2, and it took until late in the PlayStation 3's lifespan for its sales and games to reach parity with the 360. TechRadar proclaimed that, quote, Xbox 360 passes the baton as the king of the hill, a position that puts all the more pressure on its successor, the Xbox One, end quote. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> without a doubt. Uh, to continue, the 360's advantage over its competitors was due to the release of high-profile games for both, uh, from both first-party and third-party developers. 
the 2007 Game Critic Awards, uh, honored the platform with 38 nominations and 12 wins, more than any other platform. By March 2008, the 360 had reached a software-attached rate of 7.5 games per console in the U.S. The rate was 7 in Europe, while its competitors were 3.8 for the PS3 and 3.5 for the Wii, according to Microsoft. At the 2008 Game Developers Conference, Microsoft announced that it expected over 1,000 games to be available for the 360 by the end of the year as well as enjoying exclusives exclusives such as additions uh, to the Halo franchise and Gears of War, the 360 has managed to gain simultaneous release of games that were initially planned to be PS3 exclusives, including Devil May Cry 4, Ace Combat 6, Virtua Fighter 5, Grand Theft Auto 4, Final Fantasy 13, Tekken 6, Metal Gear Solid Rising, and LA, LA Noir. In addition, the 360 versions of cross-platform games were generally considered superior to their PS3 counterparts in 2006 and 2007 due to, in part, the difficulties of programming for the PS3. TechRadar deemed the 360 as the most influential game system through its emphasis of digital media distribution, as was said, uh, Xbox Live Online gaming service, and game achievement features. Uh, during the console's lifetime, the Xbox brand has grown from gaming only to encompassing all multimedia, turning it into a hub for, quote, living room computing environment, end quote. Five years after the 360's original debut, the well-received Kinect motion capture camera was released, which became the fastest-selling consumer electronic device in history and extended the life of the console, which was already said. Whoever wrote this is repeating themselves. <laughs> okay, to continue. Microsoft announced the successor to the 360, the Xbox One, on May 21st, 2013. On April 20th, 2016, Microsoft announced the end of production of new 360 hardware. Although the company will continue to provide hardware and software support for the platform, as selected 360 games are playable on Xbox One. The 360 continued to be supported by major publishers with new games well into the Xbox One life cycle. New titles were still being released in 2018. The 360 continues to have an active player base years after the system's continuation. I know, I'm one of them. <laughs> uh, according to Engadget at E3 2019, after the announce announcement of Project Scarlet, the next generation of Xbox consoles after the Xbox One, Phil Spencer stated that, quote, there were still millions and millions of players active on the 360. After the launch of the Xbox Series X and S by the end of 2020, Xbox 360 still had 17.7% market share of all consoles in use in Mexico. Comparatively, newer systems like the Xbox One and PlayStation 4 stood at 36.9% and 18% market share. Wow. Interesting. And, of course, there are still other... Uh, information such as the tech specifications, accessories. They go into depth about the Kinect. Um, you know, they you know they have the uh, the three configurations. I'm looking at the pictures of them right now. Um, the Xbox 360 Premium, uh, the Xbox 360 Arcade, and the Xbox 360 Elite. I have, I think it's the premium because it has the hard drive on the top. 
and you know that's for uh storing some games and storing saves and things like that you know so yeah i mean my my experiences with the 360 um like i said this is the last home system i have purchased and i did so at a massive discount because it was a secondhand system i think i have maybe a dozen games for it and the one i play the most is nba 2k14 uh, this system and its counterpart, the PlayStation 3, were the first true multimedia gaming systems that people would use them for those purposes. Games, movies, internet, what have you. The, the 360 did have a reputation for being fragile, as I had heard plenty of stories about the Red Ring of Death, but the second-hand one I bought has been working like a champ for the seven or eight years I've had it. To me, this was another evolutionary step in home video gaming along with the PS3. The next consoles after them, the PS4 and the Xbox One, would be another step, and now the PS5 and Xbox Series One have been on the market for some time, so we are f even further down the road of home gaming, a long, long way from the halcyon days of the Atari 2600, and <laughs> that's the truth. Whew, man, that's the 360 in a nutshell. Uh, thoughts? Uh, I know some of you people who listen to my show out there own a 360 or have owned a 360, you know, tell me your experiences with it. I want to know. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com. Okay, and that's episode 39. We are done. So, looking ahead to episode 40, I have a top 10s, which I think, yeah, I'm actually, I actually finished it. Okay, never mind. Uh, let's see, I've got that, i got a top 10, so I've got story time, what else have I got here? I've got, are you experienced, and time for some strategy about the same game, so yeah, and also I've got on the road too, so this one's going to be information packed, so in about two or three weeks time I'll record that, and the following week I'll put it up, that's the, that's the plan anyway. So anyway, um... Hopefully this summer everything is supposed to open back up, if not fully, pretty close to it. And like I said, I have a uh, a plan on going to Galloping Ghost Arcade in Chicago and also going to several other arcades in the area, which reminds me I need to get a hold of Greg Hansen because I need to talk to him. And I also need to get a hold of Jack Danger so I can visit his studio. Hey, you might even see me on his uh, stream sometime uh, later in this year. Um, and we'll, and, you know, <laughs> I look forward to that because, well, I might as well drop the, uh, you know, drop the bomb here. But yeah, I'm going to be looking into in the next two to three months depending on my financial situation i actually might start actually streaming um i'm probably gonna have to get several um get several uh gaming systems you know to stream like you know i have a retron 77 on my wish list my amazon wish list um i can probably get a couple other uh gaming you know game systems you know which have you know the games packed in and whatnot and just stream them but i have to be circumspect in how i spend my money i have a i have a growing six-year-old soon to be seven-year-old and yeah you know with when you have a child who's eating everything in sight and is growing like a weed yeah you have to really be careful about how you spend your money but anyway that's the news um i am going to 
dip my toe into the streaming world and um hopefully i can do at least as well as um oh goodness what is that arcade oh what is that stream that i watch uh i can't remember the name but yeah it's the it's this couple based out in california and they play um what 2600 and television ColecoVision. they play everything and you know they're usually on you know streaming a certain system on sunday afternoons and evenings and you know it is more of an adult oriented stream so i warn you about that uh, as a matter of fact you know what i'm going to take a second and open up uh twitch so i can properly give them give them give them a shout out it is called moonbeam arcade that's it uh, go on to Twitch, put in uh, Moonbeam Arcade in the search bar, and it'll take you right to that page. Like I said, be warned, it is an, a much more adult-oriented stream. So don't come complain to me because it, it offends your, your sensibilities. I did warn you. <laughs> so yeah, um, probably, I want to say, end of summer, going into fall, you know, if things stay the way they're stay the way they are yeah i'm going to probably start streaming um you know i think i have the support of a couple of people that i follow on twitch so we'll see what happens but yeah that's the news and it is now almost 2 30 in the morning so it is time for me to get my butt to bed so until next time this is brian saying have fun out there good gaming stay safe we are almost done with this damn pandemic if you've got your vaccinations, root good. If you don't, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> Au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.